You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. We are going to be in the book of Exodus. And the reason is, is last year I was doing this kind of workbook study through the book of Exodus, and it really kind of transformed how I see a lot of the Bible, how I read the Bible, and especially as we've been spending so much time in the book of Judges, Pastor Jonathan has been taking us through a series on Judges, there's a lot of kind of arrows pointing back to Exodus. And so I want to take this opportunity, as we're taking a Sunday off from Judges, to look at some things I've noticed while we've been there in Exodus. And so what are a couple things that we've noticed while... um, while we've been in Judges. The first thing is, there's two things that we really know. First thing, failing leaders. We've seen a lot of these judges that God raises up in the book of Judges, and they kind of fail in some place. Some of them are quite good. God uses them to redeem his people, but there can be some sort of a failure in these leaders. And as kind of a memory verse that we've had throughout the book of Judges that Pastor Jonathan's continued to show us is that in those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Even though God had brought the nation of Israel to this promised land, this is kind of what we're monitoring while we're in the book of Judges. What what Israel does in this promised land, the leaders, they kind of failed to obey what they were supposed to do. So that's the first thing. We've noticed failing leaders in the book of Judges. And the second thing is, They've kind of forgotten their past. Remember Judges 2 verses 1 through 3 is kind of an overview of what we were to expect in the book of Judges. And uh, and this is way back at the beginning, obviously, but let me just read Judges 1 through 3. Listen closely. Uh, The angel of the Lord said, I brought you up from Egypt. Okay, so that's kind of pointing back to Exodus. And brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers the promised land. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. See that kind of arrow back to the Exodus is Uh, The angel of the Lord references how he brought them out of Egypt. That's what we're trying to do here this morning. And even in this short passage here, it mentions the downward spiral that the people of Israel experience. They, They kind of do whatever they want. God raises up a savior for them, a judge, to lead them out of it. And then there's a short period of peace. And then when the judge dies, they kind of fall back into the same spiral. And we went through that a lot as we've been in Judges. And also mentioned in Judges 2 that God had instructed them that once they got to the promised land, that they were supposed to drive out the people that lived there because they worshiped idols and other gods. And did they do that? No, they actually ended up kind of mixing with these people, especially Samson, as we've recently seen in Judges. So the big question is, Why did this happen? Why does this keep happening to the people of Israel in Judges? It's a big question, and 
as we've kind of looked at, they've kind of forgotten their purpose, what they were supposed to do when they got there, and they've forgotten their past, how they got there. They've turned away from God who saved them from Egypt and are kind of mixing with the idols in the area, and they've, they've kind of forgotten that God had previously saved them. So let me just kind of clarify um, why and what we're doing here. In Judges, we see God saving Israel from themselves. They kind of fall into uh, the idols in the promised land. And in Exodus, as we're going to look at this morning, we see God saving Israel from Egypt. And so join me as we open up Exodus chapter... 13, starting in verse 17, and we'll go all the way into Exodus chapter 14, verse 20. And if you have one of those blue Bibles, that's page 32, and we'll be on that this morning. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back, and encamp in front of Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves 
in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Now, join me in prayers as we look into God's word this morning. God, I ask that you um, bless your word for us this morning, because without you, uh, we wouldn't be able to hear it. We wouldn't be able to understand it. And on our own, our hearts would naturally turn away and not listen. Um, But you're so generous in uh, preserving your word for us that we might understand what you're like. God, help me to share this word with joy, to encourage and point people to see the way that you provide salvation for your people. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we drop into the part right before God saves Israel by parting the Red Sea. Pharaoh is about to slaughter Israel. He's coming with his huge army pursuing the Israelites. And Israel sees Egypt coming, their large army with all these chariots, and they freak out. They, they think they're going to die. They think, well, either we're going to go back and serve them or we're dead in the spot, Moses. And they're trapped because they see this big army coming on their one side, and the other side is a giant Red Sea that they can't pass. And Moses, who's kind of the, the voice of truth, says, fear not, God will save you. See the salvation of the Lord today. Just watch. You don't need to say anything just watch. And right here, we see that Moses is kind of the voice of truth. He's reminding them that only God can rescue you today. Does Israel believe them? No, they can't see it. And they're so desperate in this point, at the point of death, that they begin to believe that Egypt was good to them. They get delusional. And This morning, as we're looking at this, don't overlook the obvious because we did read it. God's setting this up. He's setting up this this setting. And he even tells Moses exactly what he's going to do. As we 
picked up right away in chapter 13. Instead of going north to the land of the Philistines, they go south. And, and God's telling Moses, you're going to go this way uh, toward the wilderness, out of Egypt, and then you're going to do a 180, turn back, and then I want you to sit right in front of the ocean, right in front of the Red Sea. And I'm going to make it look as though Pharaoh thinks you're totally lost. Does that sound like a good plan, Moses? And Moses says, okay. And, but you see why. Why is God doing this? Why is he setting it up? Because instead of going to the land of the Philistines, that, that route, instead of going left, they go right. And the question is, well, that might have been a lot better. It might have been quicker to get to the promised land. But instead they go down because God wants to get glory over Egypt, over Pharaoh. And so he's setting the scene where they're trapped. They're between this big army that they can't take and this big sea that they can't cross. And they're right in the middle. And God is making it so clear that the only way they could be, they could be possibly saved from this is if God saved them. That's why God is making this so clear, because God is setting the scene so that nobody could be confused that he is the one who will save his people. This whole story of the Exodus is a big story of salvation. And because it's such a great story of salvation, a lot of us have probably heard and read this passage before and are quite familiar with this story. But I want you to realize some of the context here and how it builds to this. Israel had just been enslaved to Egypt for like 400 years. That's all they knew. And, and they, while they're in the slavery in Egypt, they cry out to God, asking that God would remember his covenant with their father Abraham. And so God remembers his covenant that God would, through Abraham, have a, this promised land and that he would be the, the father of many nations. And so they're in Egypt, and they cry, God, God, remember your covenant, your promise to Abraham. And so God initiates a rescue plan. He initiates his plan to save them. So he raises up Moses, we know this, and Moses and his brother Aaron, and he sends them to Pharaoh and says, tell Pharaoh that Yahweh has a message for him. Yahweh says, let my people go so that they can worship me in freedom. And Pharaoh denies this request. He denies it 10 times. So God gives him 10 reasons that he should listen to Pharaoh. And after the last plague, that is the night of the Passover, Pharaoh is begging them to leave on that last plague. Pharaoh lets them go. And so God is fulfilling his promises to Israel. And this leads us to a huge theme that we need to see as we dive into Exodus. God's promises are guarantees. So this is a theme we need to identify as we're in Exodus. God keeps his covenants. And a covenant, if you're less familiar, is much like a promise. It's a sort of agreement and a lot of us in this room know what like, a marriage covenant is like. It's a covenant between two people, and um, specifically it's one person covenanting, promising, and, and giving themselves to another person, even if that person maybe makes a mistake or doesn't hold up their end of the covenant. 
And even if the person were to grow old or get sick or not do dishes right or something like that, that would be a good day. And understand that a covenant, as we as people, as humans, we can make covenants, but we can kind of break them sometimes. We can break our promises. And that, that really hurts. But the weight of a covenant depends on the issuer of it. And so God's covenants are unique. God cannot lie. God cannot go back on his word. And so when God says, I will bring this about for you people, uh, you children of Abraham, it's as, as sure as done. He will bring it about because God cannot go back on his word. And so we see this covenant theme right away and as we start in chapter 13 where we see this weird, obscure mention of Joseph and his bones being carried by Israel as they're leaving. And if you read that as a, as a first shot, it's like, why is that there? Joseph is the one that brought them to Egypt. Why, why, is he, why are they carrying his remains? But it's kind of pointing to where they're going because Joseph had, made, had them promise that he would be eventually buried in the promised land. And so when we see this mention in Exodus, that they're carrying Joseph's bones with them, it's pointing to where they're headed. They're heading to the promised land. And so all of Israel would have an idea that they're going somewhere. So this is a story about God hearing his people's cries, coming to them, rescuing them, and leading them to safety. But if you're like me, some of these really common Bible stories can become so familiar, and we can read through them really fast because they're familiar, we miss some things. So let me just give you three observations that we'll try and make this morning. They're not really in a consecutive order, but they're going to help guide our conversation this morning. So the first one is Pharaoh forgets, then Israel freaks out, and then God's people remember. Okay? This is how I respond to these things. So Pharaoh forgets, Israel freaks out, and again, God's people remember. So, um, starting with Pharaoh forgets. My question's always been, and upon reading this, why on earth would Pharaoh go back and attack the Israelites or try and bring them back? Because God had just leveled Egypt with these ten plagues, with turning the river into blood and frogs and locusts and just destruction, and why would he make that mistake of going back after the Israelites? I mean, this is completely irrational, and he was just begging them to get out. Now he's going to get them with his best army. But when I was studying this, I, I realized I was always missing something. I didn't ever kind of think about what is Pharaoh's worldview, because Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt, they're not, they don't have faith in Yahweh, this one God. They're polytheists. They're, they're pagans. They had many gods. And so to give you a sort of example on what Pharaoh is thinking in going after the Israelites, I have a, a short example about um, this last fall. I was in a country in Southeast Asia where the primary religion there was called Taoism or Taoism in other places. And I don't know a whole lot about that, but I know that they were polytheists. And as I was there and 
it wasn't a mission trip, it was like a vacation, but I was there with a the family. And there's a, a guy about my age, and he was taking me through the city, and we come upon this really old temple. And he asked me, he says, hey, Troy, um, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. And he asked me, well, do you want to, is it okay in your religion if you come see our temple? And I was like, I think so. So, <laughs> so we... So he says, okay, well, come, come look at this. And so this is one of our, our family's temples or something like that. And so we walk in there, and there's people burning incense and burning money and stuff like that. And I wasn't really sure what was going on. But we come upon this stage, kind of like this one here. And there's these three above-average-sized men sitting on the stage. Mannequins, not people, mannequins. And, and there's a beard, but obviously a mannequin beard. And so we come upon these, these three above-average-sized men that all look identical. And I, I kind of point at it because I didn't, wasn't sure if that was bad. And um, I said, so who's that? And they said some name. He said, this is our God. And I was just a little struck by that. I was like, right there. That's your God. And he says, yeah. He protects our city. And again, that was another thing I wasn't really ready for because how could God be sitting there? And it, it, I mean, in a sense, it's sad, but it's like he was fully convinced that that was the reality. And, but at the same time, if it's, he's that small, it would make kind of sense that he could only protect, protect some like geographical area like a city. And so that's kind of where he was landing in his belief, in his polytheistic worldview. And so for Pharaoh, it kind of makes sense that, um, that this God, this Yahweh, who had done all these things for Israel, was kind of sporadic and small, like the gods that they believed in, and that he was inconsistent. There's no way that he could predict this God doing something consistently for Israel. That, and he hardens his heart, and he has a low view a small view of Yahweh who had just leveled them. And so, um, you could imagine that as Israel is wandering around, God's kind of turning them around back and forth, they do a 180 and plop themselves next to the ocean, that some of Pharaoh's, um, his officers maybe have been following him or reporting to him on the status of Israel as they leave. And they make their way back to Pharaoh and say, they say, hey, Pharaoh, you remember that, that slave people that we just let go? They're totally lost. They have no idea where they're going. They're, they're, they, went down to Pi, or they went down to Succoth and Etham, and then they turned around and went to Pihahiroth. Now they're by the Red Sea. And so Pharaoh is thinking, well, our cities aren't going to build themselves. We've got to get them back. And so you say, Yahweh can't help them now. They're way out there. Let's go get them. Let's go bring back our slaves. And in my imagination, I'm thinking, well, there's got to be one rational Egyptian, maybe, this in the same room as they're having this conversation about going back and get, getting the Israelites. One Egyptian raises his hand. He's like, hey, Pharaoh, remember those plagues that God had, that their God had just leveled us with, maybe we should like reconsider. And Pharaoh says, quiet, we're going to go get them, okay? 
You're, you don't get to talk anymore. We're going to go, that was weeks ago. We're going to get Israel. We need to build our cities. We've got to build our pyramids. So you can see that Pharaoh had totally underestimated the power of God, hadn't he? He didn't know that God was unchangeable and, and consistent and all-powerful and, and, and infinite in his size and power. But it kind of makes sense that Pharaoh would think that. But look, we've been talking about God keeping his promises. So if God always keeps his promises, why on earth would Israel be so worried? Why does Israel freak out? Because this has always been so striking to me, the forgetfulness of the people of Israel. Obviously, God had brought them to the Red Sea. He, was, he had just delivered them with these plagues, and it was evidently working through miracles to deliver them from, from Egypt. And they step out, and there's this giant pillar of cloud that's leading them. And, and at night, it's a pillar of fire, this total miracle. And God's glory is manifested right in front of them, leading them to this place. Yes, it looks like it's a trap, but God had led them there. And so when the future looks scary for the Israelites and they, for, they forget the past faithfulness of God bringing them there, just delivering them out of Egypt. They kind of go blind when the going gets tough. But again, remember the context. This is really important. They had just been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. That's all that they ever really knew. And so the old slave owners, their old, old kind of people, the familiar, wanted them back. And so in a sense, it might have provided some sort of like, oh, they're familiar. It's a kind of a comfort or security that they provided. And they get to the point where they believe that they still belong to Egypt. They say, did we not say to you, Moses, that it would have been better for us to stay there? We love them. They totally forget that they, they, they believe that they still belong to Egypt, even though God had just delivered them from there. In their darkest hour, they revert back to their old life before they were free. And so why do they do this? It might seem ridiculous. It might seem crazy for them to think that they're still slaves when they're free. But isn't that our tendency? If the exodus is all about people being brought out of slavery, isn't that a picture of the Christian life? to be brought out of the slavery of sin, to be justified and to be made new in Christ? Isn't that the same story? And even amidst that, if you're a believer here today, saying, yes, I know that I am justified in Christ, and I know that I've been saved out of the bondage of sin, and that my salvation is secure, you might still have this ringing question. Why do I keep on sinning? Why do I have old temptations from before I was saved? I don't really feel saved. Why do I still get mad at people? Why am I so impatient still? Why aren't I changing? I don't really feel saved. And this is a picture of the Israelites sitting there 
they're scared, and they begin to believe that the pursuing Egyptians are good to them. So let me put it this way to help kind of clarify how we might be able to look at this. So one could be objectively saved. They could know the facts. They can know with their head what is true about their salvation. And a good way that this has been summarized to me is the doctrine of imputation. And again, imputation is not a word we use a lot, but a picture of it is like when the Christian, when they believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when they place their faith in the life and work of Christ, their life is transferred to Jesus on the cross. Their sin is paid for. But simultaneously, in that belief in the transfer of your life onto Christ, and your your sin is paid for, his life is credited to you. It's imputed to you. It is as though his life was given to you as a gift. That is that he's a substitute. He takes our place on the cross. And you are declared righteous on the spot there. That is the doctrine of imputation, something we objectively can know be, to be true about the gospel. But subjectively, kind of emotionally feelings, you can still feel like your old self, even if that is true. And so Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a couple good examples to help understand what, what we're going through here. And, and one that I find really helpful for this situation is um, in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, legally declaring all slaves free in the United States. And we know from history books that all of the slaves that were now freed got smoothly integrated into the educational systems and the political systems, and that they were treated fairly as free and equal citizens. No, if you've been listening, no, that's not what we read. That's not what we remember. But why? Because they were legally declared free by this document, this Emancipation Proclamation, but their experience was not consistent with their new position. And again, the experience of the Christian may not be consistent with their position in Christ. So, let me kind of sum it up this way. Thinking about, again, Egypt, and they're having this kind of delusional thinking that it was good for them in Egypt. Think of it this way. Every time a Christian falls back into a old temptation, an old sin, an old dishonor to God, they've forgotten two things. The first one, that this temptation, like Pharaoh, wants you back. It is saying, like Pharaoh, saying, serve me, come back, or die. That's the first one. Second one is that it, this temptation, or draw back to the old life, it, like Pharaoh, no longer owns you. You're forgetting that. You're free from it. Those are the two things we forget, that it wants you back, but it no, no longer owns you. So, again, the experience may not be consistent with the position. But I want to look back at Israel for a moment. There's something really kind of unique going on here. Imagine, kind of, 
rewinding to uh, right as they're leaving uh, Egypt. Pharaoh pushes them out and says, get out of here. You've caused too much destruction here. Imagine you're an Israelite, and you pack all your bags if you had a lot of stuff. You take your family, and you step out of the city that's in Egypt, whatever that is, and you look out, and there's this really big cloud in the pillar form. It's totally anomaly. Never seen anything like it. And you're surrounded by all the nation of Israel, thousands of people, and you're looking at this cloud like, wow, that's amazing. It's so bright, it's hard to look at. And your leader, Moses, is standing at the front of the crowd, and he's saying, hey, everybody, you see that cloud over there? That's what we're going to follow, okay? And so if you're a rational Israelite, you're going to look at Moses and this giant pillar, and you're not going to say, all right, deuces, I'm going to go this way. Good luck, everybody. No, you're going to follow, you're going to follow Moses as you follow this giant cloud. You have one option. God has delivered you, and he's going to be your guide. And that's kind of what happens for the life of the Christian. God delivers us from the bondage of sin, and he's our guide. He doesn't leave us. But you say, well, okay, Troy, if you looked outside, there's no pillars for all of us as we leave today. There's not 200 pillars of cloud in the parking lot for when we leave. This doesn't apply to us today. I don't have a guide like the Israelites. Fair. But something that Pastor Jonathan likes to say at the beginning of a sermon is that after he opens up God's word with us and he reads, he says, is my prayer that this would be more than ink on a page, but like the very words of God, the words of life, to be our guide. So God has given us not maybe a pillar today, but he has preserved his word for us that it's like a roadmap. As we step out, step out of our former lives of sin and bondage, he doesn't leave us. He's provided his word as a guide, and he's sent his helper, the Holy Spirit, to fill us and help us. So, the Exodus is not just about people being saved from slavery. They are also guided along the way. And this is kind of an interesting part of where we land in this part of Exodus. Israel is now very different from when they entered Egypt. As when, if you think back to when Joseph brought his family to Egypt, he had been Pharaoh's right-hand man and then brought his family to, to go live there because that was where there's food and um, they were doing well in Egypt. And there's like maybe like a couple, couple hundred people there, maybe. And they entered as this big family, the descendants of Abraham, and they they are there for a little while, and then Pharaoh, there's a new Pharaoh, and all the people kind of pass a generation, and then they become slaves, and they start working for the Egyptians as slaves. So they entered as a family, but then now where we land, they're leaving as a nation. They entered as just a, a group of people, turned into slaves, and then they leave as a nation. And something I want to point out to you in 1 Peter 2 it's on the screen. Uh, writing to Christians, Peter says, But you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look, if you are a Christian this morning, and you've been brought to the point where you're not sure what to do next, you're not sure which way to turn, or metaphorically, old passions like the nation of Egypt is coming after you, calling you back to them, and these past temptations or anger or irritability, whatever it is that's calling back to you, and it's, it's scared, but you're starting to think that you liked it. And then metaphorically, on the other side, there's this Red Sea that's too big to cross, and this decision you're about to make, wherever you land this morning, is going to take a big leap of faith to trust God. And you feel kind of trapped in the middle. Do I, do I go back, or do I go forward to the Red Sea? And it could be terrifying. Whatever mess that you've maybe brought yourself into or circumstances outside of you have brought you into this terrifying trap, it might feel like. But friend, this morning, I just want to tell you, don't go back to Egypt. Look at God. See the salvation of the Lord. See that he might, he might be bringing you to this situation today so that he would be most, most glorified, that he would be the one to deliver you. See how he might be drawing you closer to him in this time of uncertainty. Now, if you aren't a Christian this morning or you're not sure, then maybe consider, a time, consider that the things that you're currently hoping in or things that bring you a lot of comfort and security actually enslave you like Israelites in Egypt, to the point where maybe you believe that they're good to you, that you get delusion that even though they disappoint again and again, that you think that they're good. Look, as we've looked at this great story of salvation in Exodus, we can see that God shows his love for Israel and that while they were still slaves... He delivered them. And this sounds really familiar because God shows his love for the whole world that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so could it be that now is when God wants to put on display his power to save and deliver you? Whether you've been a Christian for decades or I'm not really sure where you land this morning, would you consider that now? Like, you've been so worried about yourself and how you might get out of this trap. You've forgotten it. God has brought you here and what he has done for you. Would you cling to Christ and remember the stories of salvation? Remember how God had delivered Israel from the hands of Egypt. Remember how they crossed the Red Sea and he destroys their enemies. Remember judges when they get to the promised land. Israel falls into sin again and again. God raises up saviors, judges, to deliver them. And then remember Christ, who, who even though he was perfect and spotless and sinless, was put on the cross for you. See that as a story of salvation in his death and resurrection. 
we are delivered from the bondage of sin. And remember these stories of salvation. That's the call this morning. Remember the stories of salvation. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of salvation. That we can know things in our, in our minds are true and objectively see the glories of Christ but subjectively, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And when the world is pressing in, past temptation and past sin can be calling to us. And it might seem like there's a great big sea that we can't cross. Help us to remember the examples of you sustaining us in our lives in the past years. Remember the stories of salvation in Scripture. I ask that you would be our guide and... Um, help us to see Christ as we go out today to live for you and for your name. In Jesus' name, amen.